Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pod Zone Country, the politics podcast from the Yorkshire Post. My name is Caitlin Doherty and I am your Westminster correspondent. It is conference season and the MPs are all on recess and Parliament has gone on tour as parties have their first opportunity to gather en masse since the start of the pandemic. Labour have spent this week in Brighton where Sir Keir Starmer's headline speech which was also his first go at this, considering that he became leader in April 2020, seems to have gone down well. Beset with heckles and at the end of a conference which saw the resignation of one of his shadow ministers, infighting over internal election rules and a controversy over his deputy, Angela Rayner, labelling Conservatives as scum, polling shows that the speech has gone down pretty well. However, there are questions over whether the event really registered at all on the radars of the general voting public who are understandably far more concerned about their soaring gas bills or where they might be able to find petrol for their car. This ongoing cost of living and energy crisis is providing a backdrop Boris Johnson probably wouldn't have wished for as we head into the Conservative conference in Manchester this weekend. Like Labour, this will be the first such event for the Tories since the pandemic and also since their landslide election victory that came right at the back end of 2019. The red wall, or blue wall as you may now like to call it, uh, given that seats have switched hands from red to blue, Labour to the Conservatives, uh, was key to that 80-seat majority and brought in a raft of new Conservative MPs to Yorkshire. This week, I've spoken to two such of those MPs, Alex Stafford in Rother Valley and Miriam Cates in Peniston and Stocksbridge, asking them how, how they feel about the job almost two years in and how they think politics has changed since that winter day when we all went to the polls. I am here with Alex Stafford, who is the Conservative MP for Rother Valley and has been since the election just before Christmas in 2019. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. Excellent. Um, Now, clearly there are... You weren't the only MP elected um, to a red wall seat in 2019. There was a whole cohort. Some people, you know, described it as a little bit of a shock movement how were were you surprised by your win in a seat that has so traditionally been labor and you know a council that until very least recently was labor dominated did you think you really had any chance of winning very much so i think what we heard on the ground during the campaign i spoke to about four thousand people not by eight thousand doors again and again the rhetoric was we've been left behind we'll be ignored but they're taking us for granted we're going to make a change again and again i heard the same thing like we're the only per- i'm the only person in the town village voting conservative and that would go down every single door door after door every door was saying my father my grandfather would be turning his grave but i'm voting tory i will give you guys a chance i'm sick of labor neglecting us i'm sick of how things are going so i felt a very good feeling during the campaign there's much positivity on the seat i think i didn't expect to win so well in thanks for getting a six and a half thousand majority i think that was very uh, a, a more better than I, I expected i must confess but the feeling was definitely with the conservatives on the ground and it was a good a good uplifting campaign you'd said there you know people were saying i'm sick of labor do you think in that case it was a vote against Labour rather than a vote for you? Or were there policies and were there things that convinced Labour voters over? 
There's a mixture of both, no doubt. There's definitely the the, the, the push away from labour. People are tired of, you know, rather than labour domination for, forever, of neglect of the smaller towns and villages that make up Rother Valley. They're tired of uh, the way the Labour Party nationally have treated the voters, especially round Brexit. I mean, my seat, Rother Valley, voted 67% for leave. And they were disgusted, absolutely disgusted by Labour's policy of a second referendum, basically telling the voters, my voters, that they are too stupid or didn't understand the first way and you can't make the decision. And that's alienated the Labour voters uh, so much. On the other hand, as well, it was the positivity from uh, Boris, the Prime Minister, to get Brexit done, to get on with it and do what the people said, as well as the promise to invest in areas like Rother Valley and actually make sure that the whole country, especially as in the north, are improved and, for want of a better word, levelled up. Mm. In in December 2019 and in the months leading up to it, the only thing we could really talk about was Brexit. It, it was the only issue on the table. You know, Parliament was sitting late. Theresa May had lost her spot as Prime Minister. It seemed like it was going to be the only problem any of us were ever dealing with. But we're in a very different situation now. We've been through the pandemic and with as we speak in you know September 2021 there are concerns about cost of living cuts in universal credit rising gas prices do you think that your constituents still feel the same way about the conservative party do they still think that the conservative party speaks for them or is there maybe some doubt or trepidation sneaking in well I think you're right by saying the world we are now is a completely different world to prior to COVID and a world any of us expected. I mean, that goes without saying. A, a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic. I don't think anyone predict, no one predicted. Uh, and I think, actually, the voters understand this is a, a, a moment in time, uh, an awful moment in time, but a moment in time which no one predicted, and that we have weathered the storm, that we have got through, and that, frankly, things have changed. We spent The government spent £400 billion in various with its furlough or bounce-back loads of money to prop up the economy, to keep people in jobs. And they understand that they are tough decisions. Uh, and on a more practical level, I think looking at the local election results uh, in May this year, just gone. So uh, prior to May, we had a grand total of zero Conservative councillors. And uh, after May, we had 20 Conservative councillors, the most cons- most new Conservative councillors of any council in the entire country. And in fact, Labour were 94 votes off losing the majority control of Rotherham Council. So I think that was a, frankly, ring endorsement for uh, this new type of politics, the way things are forward. And people understand we are getting through this. Do you think that the levelling up idea is is having any cut through at all? I mean... I think a lot of people in the Conservative Party like to think that it was levelling up and Brexit that that won them the election, the promise of this great transformation and getting all parts of England and all parts of the country onto the same page. Do you think that is really happening? And if not, what actually needs to be done? Because, you know, constituencies like yours, it's not necessarily a place where incomes are high or people feel like they benefit. Well, I think the whole levelling up, uh, and I just call it just it's improving people's, people's lives far than better levelling up, is an essential part of what the government's doing. And as I said, the government spent £400 billion over the last of 18 months propping up the economy, propping up society. But despite that, they're still investing in the whole levelling up project. You know, there's a £4.8 billion levelling up fund, of which after a lot of toing and froing and pushing and cajoling, Rotherham Council at last has put in a bid for, for Rother Valley of £20 million, we get to hear about that, I think, end of October, beginning of November, which would be transformative for Rother Valley. So I think 
people understand, yes, we're not seeing all of the fruits yet because of the pandemic, but there are plans in the pipeline. So we've got this 20 million pounds in the pipeline. Things are going to get better. And fundamentally, we have a plan to get things better. We have a plan. It's a concrete plan, a plan with money behind it to actually make people's lives better. And that's what the residents want. They don't want a sort of, you know, sort of nefarious promises. They actually want to see plans. We've got them. What, at conference this coming weekend, are you hoping that the plan will turn into commitments, as in we will have this amount of money for this project? And if so, what sort of lines are you looking for there? If you as an MP could go back to your constituents and say, I've been at conference and the government have promised this amount of money for us here, what what would you like to be seeing? Well, first of all, just to clarify, we're in the now delivering up fund. The fact that we were put in priority level one, uh, says a lot to me and says a lot to my constituents. And that's going to be announced, I think, at the spending review. So I think end of, our, end of October, end of November. So it won't be this weekend. But I'd love to hear, obviously, more announcements from the government about the levelling up. And what I think is really great is the fact they've now, re- the fact they're so committed to levelling up, they've renamed a government department about it. And frankly, in my opinion, they put one of the cleverest people, Michael Gove, uh, in government, in charge of the levelling up process. And I think that can only be a good thing. And Michael Gove is one of the heaviest hitters on the Conservative benches intellectually. And the fact that he's now in charge of this shows to me the seriousness this Prime Minister takes about levelling up and getting things done. You think he's the right man for the job then? Yes, I I very much uh, believe he is. And I believe he will be coming to visit Rother Valley in the very, very near future as well to underline that commitment. So I'm looking forward to working, working here. Brilliant. Uh, do you think? Do you not think maybe it would have been a better? Uh, excuse me. It would have been a job better given to a Conservative MP who is around the patch. Maybe somebody from the Midlands, from the northeast, from the northwest, from from Yorkshire. Mm. Well, I think it's a combination of of things. And actually, one of the other great appointments uh, of the reshuffle just gone is Simon Clark. Uh, for Middlesbrough and Cleveland. Uh, he is, in my view, one of the nicest people, one of the best pleasers. Also from a Red Bull seat. He's 2017, but a Red Bull seat, a uh, long-time seat. He's incredibly clever. And now he's Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Um, for the listeners that don't know what that means, it's basically Rishi, the Chancellor's number two. He's the one who actually controls the purse strings. Rishi just makes the big spending commitments. It's the Chief Secretary, so Simon, who actually controls the purse strings. And to me, that combination of Simon Clark and Michael Gove working together, one having the money, one having the ideas and the commitment. That is a winning combination. Mm-hmm. And, okay, coming back, you mentioned the Red Wall, Simon Clark being another <laughs> Red Wall MP. There's been some data that's come out in, in recent weeks, maybe that suggests that maybe people in Red Wall seats aren't necessarily as keen on the Conservative Party as they were in this time in 2000 excuse me, 2019. Do you think that if there were an election, say, within the next six months, I do not think that there will be, Mm. do you feel confident that you would keep your seat? Do you think that the party is doing enough to keep MPs like you in a job? Well, first of all, I would say no politician should ever be confident about keeping their seat because that's the arrogance. In fact, the arrogance that Labour had for areas like ours, they're confident they would never lose a seat and therefore neglect the, the voters. The moment I say to anybody... I'm definitely going to keep my seat is the moment I should step down because you've lost that, that connection with the voter. But when it comes to actual election, I said, look at the local election results in May this year. In Rother Valley, we've got 18 councillors, 18 councillors out of those 24-ish councillors, overwhelming Conservative areas like Maltby, which didn't, which never had any Conservative present, overwhelmingly voted Conservative. So I think the, the electorate are voting uh, well for the Conservatives. I hope that continues. And not only that, I believe that we have a good chance of taking further seats uh, in South Yorkshire. 
uh, some bordering mine and further afield in South Yorkshire. And I think now that the laser focus of the Conservative Party, the laser focus of the Conservative Party is on these seats, that is only a good thing. But fundamentally, as I said, we need competition. You can't get complacent. You want to be able to work for constituents and show they're doing a good job. So I believe it's that that's going to keep us on our toes and actually deliver for people of Rother Valley and across South Yorkshire. Which seats do you think you could take and why? Oh, I, 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 can't, I can't reveal the inner, inner conservative policy, but we've definitely got our, our eyes on, it, on a few uh, South Yorkshire seats. And with a good wind, we, we, there's a lot of... A lot of potential. And actually, what I think is quite good is now you've got three South Yorkshire MPs, myself, uh, Miriam and Nick. And actually, as well as a lot of new Conservative councillors, both Doncaster, but also uh, in uh, Rotherham, we've got a first Conservative councillor in Sheffield for a long time. People are now seeing, for the last, that the Conservatives now are a viable option. I think for too long, one of the things holding the Conservatives back in South Yorkshire was people thought their vote be wasted or their Conservatives will have never a chance getting in. We have proven that we can win, and we've proven at the locals that we're going to increase our support. And then there's a lot of people who maybe voted Brexit Party or UKIP at the last few elections suddenly realise if they put their vote to Conservatives, they can do what they fundamentally want, which is end the Labour dominance of the area, and actually bring about an alternative form of representation. Okay, and one final question from me. If you could deliver a message to the Prime Minister, as I'm sure you do fairly regularly, if you could say something to him on behalf of your constituents as one thing that would help you guys keep seats like yours, what would that be? Well, as I said, I, I speak to the Prime Minister regularly, but the most important thing is keep remembering us, and he does. And that's what I think is really good about the Prime Minister. He does remember the seats, he does remember the areas. And I say keep us front and centre, make sure all the policies are, are there to help people like mine help people like who are my constituency and help other people into red wall seats. And that is the number one thing. And I have every confidence that he is doing that and he will do that going forward. Alex Stafford, MP for Rother Valley, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Also this week, I am speaking to Miriam Cates, the Conservative MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge since 2019. How are you today? Okay, thank you. I'm just working from home today. I have a sick child. Oh, no. I mean, everybody's been doing it quite a lot over the last yeah, 18 months. Right, you just go into home working mode again. I feel like we're quite used to it by now. Yeah. Um, now, you've been an MP for just coming up for two years now. Um, again, one of the many bricks or seats, whatever you want to call them, in, in the Red Wall that um, switched from Labour to the Conservatives at the last election. Um, you're Yorkshire raised, Yorkshire born and bred. What made you want to become an MP and an MP specifically in um, in these areas that weren't traditionally conservative areas? Hmm. Well, I don't have a background in politics, not party politics at all, but um, I was a parish councillor for a number of years in the village where we live. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that made it so worthwhile is just being part of such a strong community um, and learning that if you work together with other people, if you share the same park, pub, school, um, you know, there's a lot you can achieve together. And I suppose having grown up in the city of Sheffield and then having moved out to a, a more rural area as an adult, I was surprised and heartened that this sense of community still exists, really, that's based around you know, geography, a village or a town. Um, and I suppose I started to realise that actually this is something very precious. It's very important and it's something that I want to 
defend and protect, but also make more sustainable because, you know, rural life uh, and life in towns and villages can be tough. I mean, these are some of the areas that have felt left behind. Uh, and so I, I really felt that I wanted to stand up for those communities in Parliament and also work to, to make them better places to live and make sure people can live there generation after generation. Mm-hmm. And specifically, what do you think made the voters in that seat back you? Obviously, no, we, po- we know politics has been very, I don't want to use the word changeable, but you know things have swung quite significantly in the last five years or so. What do you think made people point to the Conservative Party and go, yeah, I'm I'm going to give them a chance. Hmm. Well, there, there's no one factor. And, you know, if you look at the election results in 2017, uh, Labour only won by 1300 votes. Um, it was a marginal seat. In fact, I think I only got around 1000 votes more than the previous Conservative candidate. It's just that the Labour vote collapsed. So there are, you know, there are lots of, of factors at play. I mean, the obvious one is Brexit. This is a, a, a Leave voting seat. The only way Brexit was going to get done was to get the Conservative Party majority. I think people realised that. Corbyn was not popular around here, lack of patriotism. Um, But what was really interesting when I spoke to people, you know, knocking on doors, um, two things. I think one thing, me being local, um, was important. I think there's a perception sometimes, and it's true in the Conservative Party, that uh, people end up standing in, in seats miles and miles from where they, they've lived and there isn't that, that local connection. So I think the local connection helped. But also what I really um, drilled down to in that election campaign was that people felt that they had been left behind, not by national government so much, but actually by local government. And of course, Sheffield and Barnsley have been, you know, it's changing, but Labour, Labour authorities for a long, long time. And so many people said that I was the first politician ever to have knocked on their door. And they felt that their votes had been taken for granted for so long uh, and that they'd had enough of it. And then and then finally, I suppose the issue that I really campaigned on was public transport, right from being selected, uh, going around different places, talking to different people. The one key theme was better buses, better trains. We're just not connected. Uh, And so I really um, pushed into that and, and have made that, you know, one of the. The things that I've worked on most since I've been elected. So yeah, there's no one factor. It was a range of factors, and it was a moment in time, wasn't it? And we'll look back in history. It was a moment in time that had so many different factors coming together. Do you think realistically those things that people wanted are things that they are seeing delivered? Obviously, we are in a very different position than the position that we were in this time two years ago, when you know the hype was starting to build about the 2019 election. We knew that it was coming, even if we didn't know when. Um, And at that point, it seemed like Brexit was the biggest problem any of us were ever going to face. You know, I I can't even, you know, suggest how much things have changed and how much people's perspectives have maybe shifted on that Mm -hmm. since. Um, But also, you know, areas around Yorkshire and the Humber, around the north of England generally have suffered really, really badly from the pandemic. Do you think that the people in your area feel like they are being well served by this government and do you think that they feel like that leveling up if that's what you want to call it is happening well there's no doubt that the pandemic has delayed some of the things that we've wanted to do um but it hasn't stopped them and so an example that comes to mind is the stocksbridge towns fund so stocksbridge was one of the 101 towns that was chosen back in the summer of 2019 to receive 25 million pounds of government funding for levelling up, if you want to call it that. 
Um, and as a, as a community towns fund board, we have been pushing through throughout the pandemic. We've secured that deal. We've got the project. There's still loads of work to do before a spade goes in the ground. But we've secured that for the community and the community is aware of that. I've put in two bids for improved train lines. I've secured a new bus so that, you know, it has been slower, sadly, than we hoped because of the pandemic. But there have been changes and the government's certainly been moving on policy. And if you look at the lifetime skills guarantee that was announced in the middle of of COVID. So, yes, there's been a delay, but I very much hope that that residents can see that things are moving, even if it was um, slower. But I think what's really interesting is talking to people about the way things feel. So we can measure how many more buses have we got, you know, how many more places are there at further education colleges and things like that. But actually, what really matters to voters is how do things feel? Do things feel hopeful or do they feel hopeless? And, you know, although the pandemic has been awful in many ways, we've seen some quite significant steps forward as a country. The vaccine programme, you know, the people who doubted Brexit and people who thought that we'd never function as a a nation again were proved completely wrong. I mean, the vaccine programme was absolutely phenomenal and it was enabled because we were an independent country. So I think, you know, that was... That was a real step forward. And then I think what we've got to do now as a party is capture that. Is capture, we, we've, we've set out our store. Where are we going? We want um, opportunities to be evenly spread across the country. We want everybody to have the chance at a well-paid job. But now we've got to build the narrative. OK, how are we going to do that? And what does that look like? What is it going to feel like for someone in five or ten years' time to have the opportunities that perhaps they wouldn't have had had we not been in government. And I think that's our challenge now. I don't think it's an area of weakness, but it could become one if we don't, you know, if we don't start telling that story. And I think that's much more to do with communities, with um, community infrastructure, with what it actually day-to-day life feels like for people. And in a way, the pandemic has given us a really good opportunity to reflect on that because we've seen how awful it is when you live life alone. Um, And we've seen what problems there are when, you know, we have to react quickly as a big state so actually, where's the middle ground? How can we bring community and state together uh, to make a way forward that, that make people feel like they've got opportunities? Mm. It's a really interesting word that you use there, hopeful. Um, I'd quite like to compare that maybe to the word capable. Do you, If people think that, um, you know, they feel hopeful with what this current government is providing, but obviously issues throw themselves out into the middle of the road. I mean, we're speaking here in the last week of September for the last few days, there have been issues relating to um, people getting hold of petrol, people getting hold of fuel. And that has followed after um, the week when there were issues with CO2 and, you know, gas prices are continuing to rise. Even though people may have that vision of the government wanting to help them and being hopeful, do you feel like your constituents engage and are satisfied with what the government are doing on a day-to-day basis to fight the fires like the ones that we are facing at, at the moment? Because I feel like they're two very different parts of what a government is. A government has an overall vision, but ultimately it's also the group of people at the end of the day that is running a country and has to deal with all the last minute issues that come with that. Yeah, true. And, and you know, this is a turbulent time. There's no doubt about it. Um, I mean, <laughs> fuel crisis, there was no fuel shortage. It was very much a crisis fueled by the media and caused by the media. I mean, there was no need to panic buy. And I think, you know, you, you say the government is in control, but actually the government's not in control. The government has a steer on the country, but the government can't prevent in a free society the media from whipping up a crisis. And that's exactly what's happened. And it, 
it angers me, to be honest, because it's something that did not need to happen and a responsible media would not have made it happen. And I think it's very disappointing. Um, you know, and actually who's 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 suffering now? It's people who desperately need fuel. It's people who can't afford to pay higher prices of fuel. Um, you know, you, of course, the government may well get blamed for that. Uh, governments get blamed for a lot of things. But the truth is, it's not, you know, that isn't the government's fault. But if you look at the wider turbulence, you know, I think the prime minister said the, the world economy is thawing. Um, after a huge shock. And we are going to see some ups and downs over the next few months as a result of that. But what encourages me, actually, is that lots of my constituents voted for Brexit because they wanted to see higher wages. And they're fed up of this low wage stagnation where people at the bottom of the pile, in terms of skills and jobs, just could not make enough money to get by. And you look at the HGV crisis, which actually, you know, isn't a result of Brexit. I think Poland has actually got the biggest shortage at the moment of, of, of lorry drivers. We have had a shortage of lorry drivers for a long, long time. But actually, what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to be paid more. And that is a good thing. That is why people voted for Brexit, to see higher wages in this country for people doing jobs that we've seen now over the pandemic are essential. You know, you can think of a lorry driver or a, or a cleaner or a, a supermarket worker. Um, you know, perhaps before the pandemic, people didn't give those jobs a second thought. But we've seen that they're absolutely crucial to the functioning of society. Why shouldn't those people get decent wages and decent paying conditions? And if we're seeing a reset of the jobs market that leads to that, that's brilliant. And yes, it's going to be challenging in, in the short term. Of course it is. But my, again, my hopefulness there is that it leads to something that's fairer. Um, and more equitable in the jobs market, which I think, you know, hopefully the proof will be in the pudding, won't it? We'll see where we get, see where we get to. We are um, heading into Conservative Conference this weekend. It's the first one in person since the 2019 general election. Obviously, as we've already mentioned last year, sort of threw everything out of the window that anybody could have possibly wanted to do. Um, not just as a Conservative MP, but as a Conservative MP in Yorkshire and specifically Conservative MP for Peniston and Stocksbridge. What are you hoping will come out of this conference? And is there anything that you wish you could turn around to ministers and say right now, we absolutely need this and I want you to pledge this to my voters at conference? Um, well, I think firstly, it's going to be a good opportunity to to gather and just um, to remind ourselves who we are. I think that's really important for any organisation is to meet in person and to, um, you know, share stories, share relationships, talk about what's happened over the last two years, which has been traumatic for everybody, to say the least. So I think that it will be an important opportunity. Um, and I think there's going to be a great atmosphere, really, because, you know, this had had it not been for the pandemic, the conference last year would have been, you know, the first since the biggest election victory that we've had for, for decades. And I think it would have been a very celebratory atmosphere. We missed that, but I hope that there'll be something of that this year, even, even though there's been obviously a lot of water under the bridge. No, I'm not, I'm not calling on ministers to announce anything particularly at, at conference. And I think, um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to hear some of the vision that, that's set and hopefully some of that narrative built. But I'm really going to engage with members and to get involved with some of the policy discussions and the deep thinking that we really really need to do but the pandemic has has, has put on hold so you know I, yes I'm going as an MP and that's going to be an interesting experience but I'm really going as a member to um, find out what other members think and, and how we can you know evolve the party as we need to uh, as it has done for decades and decades uh, in response to the needs of the country.
Do you think that if there were um, a general election, I'm I'm not going to say tomorrow because that's a cliche. Oh, if there were, if, God, no, not for any of us, please, we need to go to bed. Um, if there were a general election soon, do you think that currently where you are, you're, uh, the Conservative Party have done enough to keep hold of seats like yours and um, the people that voted you in? Um, I mean, it's been fairly well documented that plenty of seats across the Red Wall, people voted Conservative, not necessarily for the first time, not only for the first time in their lifetimes, but maybe before all their parents and grandparents had never voted Conservative. Do you think that your party has done enough to keep those voters on board? Um, or what needs to be done going forward to keep hold of them with you? Um, well, the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, how you, you know, that's the point of the poll, isn't it? Is you find out on the day. Um, but I, I hope so. And I think the reasons for that is that although the pandemic has delayed some of the, the levelling up um, programme that we hope to do in terms of infrastructure and things like that. I hope that the response during the pandemic, whilst of course it hasn't been perfect and what crisis response is, you know, the theme of our response has absolutely to be protect the most vulnerable and the poorest. And if you look at the furlough scheme, um, you know, all the other um, financial support schemes that were handed out, you know, if you look at the distribution across the different income deciles, absolutely weighted towards those on the lowest wages. Um, and that is a marked difference to how, for example, the Labour government responded to the banking crisis in, in 2008. And I think, you know, that anybody who said going into this that the Conservatives only care about, you know, the free market economy or they only care about people at the top of the pile. I mean, the pandemic has proved that's not that's not true. And I'm not saying we've got everything right at all. I mean, I think our response on on schools, for example, the, the consequences for children for you know a generation is going to be you know, very, very bad. But but I think we've shown that we care about this country and we care about everybody. Um, so, you know, I'd hope that if there was an election tomorrow, that that would count. But I also think, you know, let's be pragmatic here. Let's be political. What's the alternative? You know, Labour haven't got a story to tell. They don't even know what they think. So, you know, we do have a story to tell. And whilst we not be, might not be perfect, our goal is opportunities equally spread across the country. And we're creating a narrative about how that will feel. Um, for people so you know and whilst the pandemic's delayed things you know we've got the leveling up fund that's going to deliver new railway lines and new infrastructure across the country we've got the lifetime skills guarantee I mean that's you know the emphasis on further education that just hasn't been there for, for decades and will give ordinary people the skills they need to do well-paid jobs these are big big things and whilst of course not everybody's obsessed with politics like you and me and they won't have read every policy detail you know I hope that the sense would be that we are on a journey, um, you know, to, to better things. Mm -hmm. um, one final question from me. Um, I've probably done this entirely in the wrong order, so I'll get somebody fancy to edit it and put it where it should be. <laughs> and put it um, right, yeah. <laughs> um, I, the question's coming back to um, you and specifically your interest in politics. You, you said before that you didn't really, you don't really have a background in politics. If I understand, um, you have a bit more of a background in business, don't you? Um, um, well, a little. I um, I was a science teacher. I trained as a science teacher and worked okay. as a science teacher. And then I took a career break when my children were small. And at that time, I helped my husband in his business with just doing the accounts and things like that. So, yeah, I can't claim to be some uh, business brain. But I have. But but having said that, I think the experience of helping to run a small business has been absolutely essential because 
actually the vast majority of businesses in this country are small and the kind of things that you know I was dealing with back returns accounting chasing invoices um PAYE those are exactly the kind of things that people across the country are dealing with every day so I have to say that that has been really really important to have that understanding coming into being an MP the the vast majority of businesses are businesses run from kitchen tables rather than big big shiny glass offices but from that point it's interesting to hear that it came from a career break what made you want to make the shift over to um full-time politics being an MP I mean being an MP is more than a full-time job so the all-consuming job that is being an MP and coming into politics like this um well it was kind of an accident (laughs) um looking back it's um you know a very happy accident but I um consider I I, as I said I was a parish councillor and I um whilst I love being a parish councillor was very fed up with Sheffield City Council as a result of my interactions with them and started to think that I might like to be a city councillor um, to try and have, you know, some sort of positive influence. Um, and so I, well, it's a long story. I did look at all the parties because I, as I said at the time, I wasn't uh, politically aligned. And I, but I did realise that you have to join a party to get anywhere in, in, in politics, even, you know, at the most local level. Anyway, I ended up standing as a conservative in an unwinnable ward in Sheffield. But I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the campaigning and I um, was selected for a different ward. Um, and then I ended up at party conference and I made some connections. And um, I was just very, very fortunate that three weeks later, Penison and Stocksbridge came up for a selection and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Um, and then a year later, I was an MP. So uh, it, there's a lot more to the story than that. But that's it in a nutshell. Um, And I suppose the reason that I went through it um, and I saw it as a positive opportunity was partly because although I wasn't hadn't been politically aligned before, I have always been interested in politics right from being about 10 or 11. I can remember being fascinated by it, even though none of my family politically, uh, you know, have that kind of level of political interest or party for the affiliation. But I just always felt that it might be something that I wanted to, you know, might want to do one day. Um, and also I suppose I just thought this is too good an opportunity to miss if I do want to have this kind of influence for my community if I want to stand up for those things that I talked about in terms of um, you know strong communities sustainable communities then this is an opportunity and of course at that time 2018 it was in the midst of Brexit chaos there's no guarantee at all that this would be winnable or even when a general election was I really made a decision to become a candidate um, and then one thing led to another. So, yes, good. Uh, I'm, I'm not I don't regret it, but it was definitely a shift. No, I just find that really interesting because so many people on on both sides, in both the La- in both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, it's people who've, you know, been members since their 16th birthday, you know, ran the political society at university and then became a councillor at 22 or whatever. Yeah, that's right. it's, it's quite interesting seeing that hearing the perspective and hearing about politics from somebody who has been interested, like you say, but not necessarily ingrained or on that path for, for their entire life. Do you think that that's, um, do you feel like it's been beneficial to you in parliament or do you feel like maybe a bit left out of, of those cliques of people who've been doing it for a lot longer? No, I think it has been a huge benefit actually that, yeah, there are some instances where people mention, you know, somebody who everybody knows who they are apart from me. Um, but you know, you soon, you, you can just ask, I mean, you soon and, and how the voluntary party works and the diff, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm still 
trying to work that out and who all the different officials are. But no, it's a huge advantage. And the reason for that is I, it sounds a bit strange, but I am basically an adult convert to conservatism. I have chosen that. You know, I haven't inherited it. I haven't grown up going to party events every month. You know, this is a choice. And I've chosen that because I've looked at what the Conservative Party believes. I've looked at what they stand for. And I've decided that out of all the parties, this is the one that most aligns with my worldview, if you like. And I think that is a huge advantage because I'm absolutely confident in defending um, and explaining why I think that way. And that doesn't mean I agree with everything the Conservative government does. Of course it doesn't. But it means that I'm confident in that in that vision, in that narrative, in that understanding of, of the world. Um, and I think that that is an advantage, um, you know, and uh, having chosen that that position as an adult. And what what really convinced me to join the Conservative Party was uh, read, I think it was David Cameron had written an article something somewhere. And he said, um, when you give people control over their money, their families, their lives, they generally make good decisions. Um, and that, you know, that's my philosophy. Of course, people don't always make decisions. And that's why we need the law, the state, you know, all these other things. But generally, if you give people autonomy, and I think autonomy is a, a crucial part of human dignity, they make good decisions. And for that, you need um, to give people control, to give people power, to give to trust people. And I think only the Conservatives have a vision for that. Um, and that's, you know, that's what that's what convinced me to join. Miriam Cates, thank you very much for giving up your time to join me today. It's been great to hear from you. Thanks. Great to speak to you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pod Zone Country. If you have any topics you think we should be covering or any stories you think that we should be digging into, please get in touch with me over email on caitlin.doherty at jpress.co.uk. I'll speak to you next week. <laughs>